This episode of Roderick on the Line is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. This month, they asked Paul and Storm to help me say hi to John. I'm not a doctor, but you know I'm feeling fine. Turns out, all I need is you and Roderick on the line. Good morning, John. Hello. Hello. How are you today? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's just swell. Bob's your uncle. <laughs> I've got my <laughs> raccoon hat on and I'm ready to broadcast. As a side note, can we do that for 90 minutes? <laughs> Here's the problem. First, you got to keep moving, then you got to get out of the way. That's number one and number two. You can put that in your pipe and smoke it. Take it to the bank. Uh, <clears throat> Feeling no. frisky, Johnny. <laughs> I got nothing. I'm done. <laughs> the, the, the amazing thing is, you know that you know that quality when you look at, at really old photographs of people. Like you look at, you find a photograph of an of a whole class of, from a school. You look, or like you know, but they're adults, like a technical school or something. You look at their pictures, and their faces, their 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 physiognomies just look old. Oh yeah, they don't look like modern people. Mm-mm. And then when you listen to recordings of the way people talked. In old movies, radio, they don't talk like normal people either. They talk like old, old. You mean like you people. mean civilians, not like trained broadcaster types. Like you, the thing is, the difference today. Everybody wants to be on TV and on the radio, so everybody's already. You go do a man on the street, a person on the street, and they're going to have a bit. Mm-hmm. But back then, you hear interviews with people from like the fifties and sixties. It's delightful because they they sound like normal people. They're normal people, and also there's a there, when you look at those classic movies from the from the 1930s or the you know the early talkies. There's that kind of almost British quality to the way they speak, and they're, they're very you know like there's a but but at the same time there's a um, there's a a a, a, a self awareness of the uh, of their diction right that feels a little bit put on. It is. I think. I think this is. God damn it! I'm gonna have to. I'm not using the internet now. Mm-hmm. This nope. comes up twice a year, and I need to find out what this is called. But it was. I think it's the way that people were trained. Elocution. I bet you part of it. Part of it is stagecraft out of being in plays and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then you right. know, in the early days, as we learned from singing in the rain, John, you have to speak very clearly. Your voice. You probably. You probably sound like a clarinet when you talk. Mm-hmm. You got to have a, a real uh, resonant voice. But I think that's that was the what do they call it? Like the received pronunciation of Hollywood. Yes. You know, like the BBC English. I think we, that was our version of that. The received Hollywood pronunciation. Well, and this is one of the. You know, I've said for many years that I believe that um, the English language has continued to evolve as it has moved away from its uh, from its place of origin, and that actually. The, the the most perfectly spoken English is that uh, which is spoken by the educated people of Alaska mm. because it's been through every gate, right? It's, it's, it's made its way through all this sort of Midwestern nasal and Southern drawl and West Coast noncommittal. <laughs> and it's made its way is that, to... That's a genre, West Coast noncommittal? West Coast noncommittal. You hear it all the time. Uh, it's a, you know, it's kind of spoken from your teeth, 
But then you get to Alaska, and every you know everyone uh, since Alaska has been so recently settled by Europeans, right? It's a it's a mishmash of all the different spoken Englishes, and we have refined it until it has become perfect. And you know, it is broadcaster English, but even better. And when I when I advance this theory to people, for instance, from England, they find it laughable. But they are still speaking a kind of archaic English, some leftover hodgepodge, some steak and kidney pie that's been left out on the counter. Snap. <laughs> and dip, dip. meanwhile, we have. Been, meanwhile, we're up here in Alaska perfecting the language. That's right. We have. We have. Uh, we've. We've sent it through a thousand cheesecloths, and here it is, the best version. Not some. Not some Boston. Uh, you know, some Boston baked beans of English. No, it is Alaskan English. The, I think you hate beans and pie. <laughs> the perfect version. Hmm. I can't. Hmm. I have the, the problem is Alaska has a very small population, and everyone else is allied against this theory. But I really do think there's something to it. Is it anything that you can demonstrate? Well, I demonstrate it only in the perfect way that I speak English. You just blew my mind. <laughs> I've been getting the demo the whole time. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. If you can, I mean, and, the, and there, are some, there are some small, like, glitches, right? Some, some brief moments, some max headroom moments where you see, you see the behind the curtain. Mm. Or you see the, see the matrix. For instance, I do say, everybody. Everybody, oh, get, o- everybody yeah. get over here. You you got you you know I don't like to make a big deal about it. you got several of those I know I've got several of those. Now wait a minute, you're saying several? You have you you, you can name more than one everybody. <laughs> What's the name of the place where you did your show last year? Rendezvous. <laughs> <laughs> the ron- a- the rendezvous. Yeah, how is that supposed to be pronounced? I think it's rendezvous. It's French. I like the way you say it, but. Ah. You know, I say this because, you know, I'm being defensive because I have more of these than I realize. And then once people start pointing it out, I become self-conscious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, People yell at me for saying Sasquatch. Oh, instead of Sasquatch? Sasquatch. What about what your kids uh, put on to go to bed at night? Pajamas. Pajamas. Yeah. Well, what what, what do you say? Well, I don't know. I'm really, I'm on the horns of a dilemma between pajamas and pajamas. Pajamas? Yeah. Doesn't that sound a little fancy? Come on. That's like aunt. Okay, thank you, John. God fucking damn it. Aunt, aunt is like writing a sentence without an Oxford comma. Hmm. Aunt is, aunt is terrible. Uh, aunt is terrible. I, it really, it really, I, and, and the thing is, my wife, the thing is, this is, you know what, what it's like to be in a relationship, right? You Barely. Under- <laughs> 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 you, you don't know whether to hit the bell or throw it out the window. <laughs> the bell or wipe my tears with it. Um, you know, I have said, I don't, I'm not saying I have success with this, but I think a big part of being in any kind of a long-term relationship is learning the things that only you are allowed to be right about. Oh, uh-huh. if you can, if you can minimize the number of things that only you are allowed to be right about. Here's you, a thought technology. That's a thought technology. Cause I think it makes you a better person. And I'm pretty sure, uh, even though, you may not. You may still think in your mind that you need to be right about something. There's just so much stuff where I, I want to really keep my powder dry. 
right? Mm -hmm. And and the thing is, I also know how desperately fucked up I am, so I'm always looking for improvement opportunities. Right. But I have to say, there are some things I capitulated on aunt. Because a long everybody, time ago? well, because of my lady, everybody in her family says aunt. So I'm the only one in the family that refers to Aunt Sue instead of Aunt Sue. And they think I'm talking about, you know, insects or something like that. Mm. But then sometimes I find myself saying, yeah, that's right, Ellie, uh, later in the month, we're going to your aunt and uncle's house. Because <laughs> I, I catch myself having to speak it phonetically. Aunt and uncle. Uncle. I don't know. I guess I see why, but I, I've gone through this with a few people. Like uh, I was talking to you on another program about how uh, you take the first name of the guy who was the deputy on Andy Griffith, Mm-hmm. And you take the phenomenon of sun coming up in the morning, and I pronounce both of those the same. A uh, uh, Barney Don? Barney. <laughs> oh, Don and Don. Okay, now do you say those any different? Don and Don. So is there, is you, I'm sorry, are you saying them different? You are saying them differently, right? Yeah, Don. Okay, this uh, is this is my Dawn. color, this is like me and colorblindness, not to be ableist, but this is, I, I can't really hear that difference. You cannot hear the difference between Don and Don. There's, <laughs> wow. this, is, this is a prank, and that's okay. Well, but, no, that's no, that's uh, because I feel like I feel like the vast majority of our listeners would be able to hear that I was pronouncing a whole different word. I'm never going to be a good audio professional. I I know people from the tri-state area. I feel like people from the tri-state area will say Dawn. Hmm. You, by tri-state area, you mean uh, uh, you mean uh, New Mexico, Arizona, and Colorado. The original, the OG. <laughs> No, I'm talking about the you got your New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania uh, triads. Yeah, right. I get you. I don't know, and you know, it's just it's it's funny because like I don't think of myself as being. I, I know people who are very sensitive about their pronunciation in in the same way that uh, you might be sensitive about like a lazy eye or something. You know, people like, are oh, oh people because they feel like they are overcoming some uh, some like regionalisms. Maybe, but also we talked about this that phenomenon, and I know some very smart people that have the same problem where if you you're a reader and especially if you're an internet reader oh i see you know you know where i'm going with this yes, yes and you yes. have read a word you have one of these i remember I can't, I can't remember what the word is but you you'll have read a name or you'll have read you know a given word potentially thousands of times you might actually know more than 80 percent of the population about this noun but mm. you've never actually had to say it out loud well wait i said i i used one at the very beginning of this program hmm. i i used the word physiognomy which Oh, this I, is your this is your physiognomy. Physiognomy, and I and neither one of them sounds right. And I, as a writer, I have used this word a thousand times. I think it all the time. Like that, that's an interest is interesting physiognomy. But I do actually not know how it is pronounced. And right. every time I start to say the word, I become aware. I'm about. I, I become aware that I have gone too far in the sentence to not say it. And then I'm committed, and somewhere halfway, you know, I'm, I'm in the air, right, doing a daffy. <laughs> you don't have time to, to think about whether you should have jumped. You just need to figure out how you're going to land without breaking right. something. And I'm going to land it, and I and I either and depending on who the person I'm talking to is, I either go physiognomy, physiognomy, phys, physio. Yep. Yep. I mean, just, I just, I try and get out of there. I try and get to the ground. You just like, cycle through do. an array of every conceivable pronunciation and mispronunciation, and here's you look like you're genuinely damaged. Yeah, and, and the problem is, I have gone multiple times to dictionaries and looked at the jumble of upside down U's and mm-hmm. other, you know, diphthongs, uh, trying to figure out what the pronunciation of that word is, and I, it, I can't make heads or tails. 
details of it even when I really investigate it. And I never, no one ever uses it. No one ever says it out loud. Right, right, right. You're, so, you're a trailblazer. So I walk through the world waiting for some, waiting for someone else to say that word to me so that I can, I can at least latch onto their pronunciation of it and say, <laughs> I know one thing. I've heard it once. But yeah. I've n- no one ever speaks it, and I think it's because no one else knows how to pronounce it. I think, that's, I think it's true. I think as writerly people, we tacitly understand that if you don't know the meaning of a word, don't use it. You could go look it up. That's mm-hmm. good. You're, you're, you're improving your word power. You know what I'm saying? Improve your word power. You want to improve your word power. I'm just saying, though, you might, you might want to be careful if you are using a word and don't like, like the times, for example, that I have said expendable when I meant flexible. Okay. That was really super embarrassing. Right. I, I used to say, um, I used to say momentum when I meant inertia. Oh, you know, I noticed these things a lot more than I used to. Hmm. And I don't, I don't even think of myself as a word nerd, but I really like, I really like using the appropriate word, and it drives me crazy when I realize I've been using an incorrect or inexact word for a long time. Yeah, yeah. The um, <clears throat> the the hardest part uh, of doing that is getting corrected. Like the momentum inertia one, I knew I was using it wrong. I mean, I knew I was. It, it was one of those things where you're searching, you're you're doing the Terminator, and you're searching your. Uh, your your heads right. up display beep, beep, beep. for fuck you asshole momentum asshole and uh, and and I and I just didn't have inertia entered into my my you know my dictionary for that application and it's not that I hadn't learned it I just hadn't gotten it wasn't on the short list and I kept getting to momentum and just saying it because I wanted to get on with the thought right and Nate. The bass player of the Decembrists once in a bar said, do you mean inertia? And I was huh. like, I do mean inertia. Thank you. And then that use of that word is now tied to Nate query. And I... Um, I bet you still think about it. I cannot say the word. In uh-huh. the, I cannot say inertia in, in the way that I mean it now without without picturing him picturing his kindly face you know i uh and i happen to like him very much and he meant he meant that in a very nice way i mean he wasn't trying nice, to shame nice people me. i i uh i i still this is a little bit of a callback but now for the last few months every time that's rare that i drink from a water fountain but every time i drink from a water fountain now i think of your friend that i've never met who told me to think of him when i drank from a water fountain that's right oh my god See? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mental virus spanning thirty years. It's ridiculous, and I'll bet you right now there are people listening to this show that are going to go drink drink from a water fountain. They're going to think of me thinking of your friend that they've never met. It's Language insane. is a virus. Ooh, it's, it's insane. He planted that bug knowingly Ugh. because he's a sadist. What a dick. Here's the thing, and I, you know, I don't. Uh, I feel myself like like slowly grinding into permanent old man mode. <laughs> it's happening to us so fast. <laughs> when we started this podcast, we were still young men. We were a podcast of ideas. And now we are just Le- Liebschnitz and... And, uh, <laughs> and Stoller? <laughs> and Stoller. 
Um, here's the thing. I, I am not one of the, I don't think I'm one of those people that feels like the language should be static because obviously it's always evolving. You're not a member of the French Academy, for instance, who may, may know that, who, who believes that we should say from a bourgeois <laughs> instead of cheeseburger. It's well, not the fromage bourgeois. We used to, we used to, uh, like to harass our, uh, French literature teacher who was also the French language teacher. And so we would just ask him asinine things in the middle of class all the time. <laughs> and he would say, uh, he was a, you know, a, a, a professor. We'd always call him Mr. Hickson just to get on his nerves. We'd say, Mr. Hickson, how do you say uh, my nails are salon perfect? Would you say mes anglais sont parfait du salon? And he'd go, uh, talking about Flaubert, but uh, uh, you would have to say, my, no, my nails are perfect as though I have just come from the salon. <laughs> I was explaining to uh, to my daughter uh, yesterday that <laughs> the actual words of uh, Frere Jacques, the actual English You're translation. You're still singing that at night? Yeah. And the actual translation should be, Brother John, Brother John, sleeping are you? Right. Sleeping are And she was just like, what? Yeah. This is insane. And I was like, yeah, I'm telling you, that's why. We're in a very tenuous uh, military alliance with France. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. There's, you know, there's, there's cognates and there's cognates. You know what I'm saying? I do. My problem is, and I, you know, it's, I, I like the evolution of things. I do get, I'm not a big fan of Hella. When I hear that, I mean, Hella is kind of the, like, as Hella is to this generation as, you know, was to ours hmm. in some ways, just in the sense that it becomes something that you are just, you're putting in everywhere. It's, that's okay. That's okay. Here's my general overarching issue. It's not really a language problem. It's a communication problem. I think there are probably think pieces about this on Medium right now. Mm-hmm. I think young people don't know how to communicate with other people anymore. Hmm. Tell I, me more, old man. Well, uh, for example, uh, you think about talking to somebody on the phone. I, and I, nobody I, I likes. Try, I try not. To. I know. I know. Nobody likes talking on the phone. But there are times when it is the quickest path to communication. Uh, and I maybe this is just because, again, because I was a little kid in a different age. But I speak very clearly when I'm on the phone. I yes. focus very heavily, and I risk sounding like I'm being very repetitious by making sure that we all understood what we just said and agreed. Yep. Right. Just yep. just because I think it's really useful to go. I do that in emails. I do that all the time. Just to cl- just to clarify, we're meeting tomorrow slash Tuesday. That dumb stuff, you know, and, yeah, and right. just but I feel like I talk to so, so like sometimes we get groceries delivered from this place in town and they have to call if there's a replacement. And, I, and they're not even talking into the phone. I don't know what they're doing with their phone, but they don't they don't know how to communicate. They don't know how to pause to let the other person speak. They don't know how to account for latency in a call. It's just just kind of this meandering like it's just do you know what I'm talking about? Do you ever get this? Mm-hmm. And I've heard it said turns out I've heard it said that a lot of people say a lot of people say that uh, also uh, millennials not so into eye contact when they talk mm-hmm. makes them uncomfortable. I see. You have I to see. send them an emoji. An emoji. John, you should get more into emoji. You know, I'm really I, behind on emojis, John. I'm an old enough guy that I can't see what half the emojis are. They all look like uh, the turd, right? <laughs> Somebody sends me like a, 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 a winking devil cat, and I'm like, is that a turd? <laughs> I look over with the top of my glasses. Are they sending me a turd? <laughs> is that How face, dare they? What is that? Is that face anxious? Is it scared? 
What? what the, the turd face? No, no when the people, the turd face you get, it's turd. Yeah, right. But yeah, yeah. The you, other, the other thing is also the, I, I refuse to stop using sentences and punctuation when I text people. And I'm told that that makes me sound angry. Oh, I see. Yeah, right. You need to end everything with an exclamation point. You get three options. If you're saying thank you, you're supposed to say thanks with an unnecessary exclamation point. (laughs) Failing at that, you say thanks with no punctuation. And if you say thanks with a period, it's considered a fuck you. Oh, right. Thanks. 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 Yeah. Well, I, you know, I have struggled with this a lot, and I, this, we have we have really uh, jumped the old man shark. But <laughs> I, I've definitely struggled with the lack of. Why are socks ex- so hard to put on? <laughs> where Where does that other one go? <laughs> I put two in the dryer. I'm sure. Don't they know old people like hard candy? Why are the jars so hard to open? I, uh, I do. I have succumbed somewhat to the exclamation point. Uh, uh, escalation because I I recognize you know I do a lot of texting and I recognize that the thanks with a period is a little is a little bit of a <clears throat> it's a little cold mayonnaise you know it's a little bit of yeah. just like mm. but I have said hella for thirty years huh. and huh. He- hella is one of those things like. Like dude, or like um, uh, like uh, in the early nineties, well, late late eighties, uh, there was uh, there was that verbal tick that went around for a while, where you'd say like, you know, oh my god, today is beautiful, and the other person would say, yeah, it is, yeah, right, and you'd be like, yeah, it is, and they're like, yeah, it is, yeah, it is, and it it felt like it was a challenge. Uh, and then I picked that up, and uh, dude, and and hella, both were words that I started using initially as. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was I was um, a parody. Sort I was parodying, sarcastic. People. Yeah, like oh hella, uh, and then it just became like I say, dude, and have said, dude. That takes that takes life. about a week and a half. Yeah, dude. to go f- to go from doing the Eddie Vedder voice as a joke to not being able to stop. Yeah, and and, and yeah, Hella is one of those for me, and and you don't you know, use it a lot, though. No, I'm not like you're not an animal. I'm not like some kind of like Hella Hella dude. No, you know, no. like I don't use it Hella amount. I'm a dude guy. The other one I've been that uh, I think I actually saw an article somewhere about this recently. The uh, the ascendance of no, yeah, or like th- th- that movie was really good. No, it was great. Like when did that happen? <laughs> I do I, I do it all the time. No, really, it was great. Yeah. No. No. But to, to to agree with somebody by starting by saying no. You, uh, so lately I have really, I, I know what we're getting at here, which is that. <laughs> we're irrelevant? <laughs> well, no, that, that we're both very confused because on the one hand, we do want language to be useful and meaningful and uh, and follow some rules, right? That seems normal. That seems regular. Uh, uh, but then we don't. We don't want to stand in the way of the uh, of the constant evolution of of communication right. and be like old and be angry about it, but at the same time, the entire theme of this podcast for three years has been that standards are declining everywhere, yeah, and uh, we need to like uh, uh, like pull up our pants and and go back to work as uh, at, at our jobs, and so I don't know. I, I, I'm talking now personally. Mm-hmm. I am. I'm. 
navigating these these very uh, precipitous hills in my own life and just wondering, I cannot surrender, right? That isn't in my nature to just surrender. I, you mean to capitulate? To, 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 to capitulate. Thank okay. you. That's, yeah. a, that's the better word. Uh, but at the same time, it's important to listen and learn. You mm-hmm. know, there's, there, there's, a, there's a lot of – I've been seeing this a lot lately where people say like, well, you just need to listen now. And I go, I'm comfortable listening and learning. I really am. I've been doing that my whole life. I like it. It's a great thing. But at a certain point, that like you just need to listen is being used as a, a way of saying you just need to capitulate. <laughs> right. And <clears throat> you, like listening and learning is wonderful, but then it, it, there, there's also some, you know, there needs to be some back and forth or some pushback on some ideas, right? Or some, or some asking to clarify, right? Asking to clarify or, or you know, or just thinking, churning on it, right? I mean, there's, there's and uh, the, that little tick that I just did, which is to end every sentence with right, question mark. Oh, yeah. Super annoying. And I, it was pointed out, uh, it was pointed out not that I was doing it, but I was at a, an event where the, the host, you know, a very educated and erudite woman who was giving a long presentation said right at the end of every sentence until it was, you know, until it, re- it was like, you really, you really notice it. It was like a foghorn in the room <laughs> and, and it, and you know, it didn't detract from like the, the real smartness of the presentation. It just was like, <laughs> you started to wince at the end of her sentences. Like, Oh God, don't, Oh, she did it again. Oh, it's right. And pretty soon that's all you can notice. But so I don't know, you know, we do have an obligation. This is, this must be the, this, this must be, the uh like the 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 terrible thing about middle age this must be it merlin which is to <laughs> to stand athwart two eras and to say now hold on wait wait just everyone hold on just a second <laughs> and that must be why middle aged people are so uncomfortable and why it's why it's why they buy red corvettes why it's talked about as such a difficult time right and we're experiencing it. Yeah. I mean, because you're, I mean, it's, I can't stop thinking of this recent episode of Louis C.K., that uh, the Louis show, where he he begins by being mad about the way he's treated at this uh, cookware store. It's a fantastic episode. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and the woman basically just confronts him. She's like, yeah, I'm 24. I own my own store in Manhattan. You know, is this the way, are you always this threatened by being around young people? And he's getting his dander up and, you know, like, why, why, don't, you, why don't you learn about customer service? And so he's like, oh, go to Williams-Sonoma. They'll treat you nice there. <laughs> but, you know, because this cute 24-year-old Asian woman who owns her own store won't kiss his ass like he's accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And she basically calls this shit on it and goes like, well, you're, you know, you're getting older. You're becoming less relevant. Don't you want your kids to evolve and become better than you? See, things are working out fine. <laughs> but it also makes me think, you know, I... I guess it was a long time before I really thought about this, this, uh, that distinction between – you talk about having to uh, – people saying you should just go out and listen. I mean I think the first distinction between listening and hearing that, that I became aware of is that you can hear stuff, uh, just stuff. Right? You have to hear what's going on around you. I hear traffic noise outside, but I'm not paying a ton of attention to it. When I'm listening, I'm focusing my attention on what people are saying mm. with the understand with the um, – with the implicitly, now I'm hearing a train go by. I hear these things, but when I'm listening to them, I'm focusing my attention with, with partly the idea that I want to understand it better. 
But that was, I think that's a pretty good distinction. But mm-hmm. a, a more recent one that's really been occurring to me because internet is the difference between hearing and listening. Um, listening means that you pay attention to something for more than content. When you, I think when you listen to someone, you're looking to go way beyond what they think they're saying, what you think they're saying, to learn more about who they are and yeah. what they think and the context for why they're saying what they're saying. And right. that you, you know, God damn it, you fucking Gamergate douchebags. It means more than just trying to contradict the facts of what somebody says. Right. It means trying to hear what they're saying and then listen to why they're saying it so that you can understand the context for more than why they're not looking for a note from you on how yeah. they said it and what they said. They're looking for you to have some empathy that sometimes means not talking sometimes that empathy means you just have to you're gonna have to sit here it's like meditation it's not gonna take one minute to get good at this you're gonna have to be here for a while and just not talk for a little while in order to really understand what these folks are talking about yeah and ultimately listen that's listen to me ultimately listening is an emotional exercise as opposed to hearing right a listening is uh, so often right right, when someone says just listen to me um, what they're, what they mean is don't ever, don't ever offer a solution. Like I am, <laughs> don't ever offer a, uh, critique. I just want you to listen as an emotional, uh, to be emotionally receptive. You know, so many people want to just be heard and it's, it's, it's alien to me because I'm, uh, you know, I'm from the beginning Right, I, I, I was at a I was at a preschool meeting the other day, and the and the teacher got up and said to everybody in the room, "Can you remember the first time that you really felt heard by a teacher?" And everybody, you know, nodded thoughtfully. And she was like, "I remember the first time I was ever heard by a teacher. I was in eleventh grade, and a teacher, you know, really heard my project, and it and <clears throat> you know, and his response was what." made me decide to be a teacher myself, you know, and we went around the room and everybody told the story about the first time they were ever heard, Hmm. really heard and and noticed and seen by a teacher. And, you know, the, the problem for me was that there was never a time in my life when I didn't feel heard by the teachers. Um, when I was three years old, I assumed I was being listened to by the teachers and all the way through school, I, it never once occurred to me that the teacher didn't know not only, you know, my name and what I was working on and, and was validating my process, but was like celebrating me. And I see it in my daughter too. Like there's, there's no question in her mind that, the, that, that everyone is listening to her. And it's a, and I was sitting next to a woman who was like, well, you know, I, no one ever listened to me, I, but I got straight A's and that's how I knew, that's how they knew me. They knew me as the girl that got straight A's, but I, you know, I don't think anybody, I never spoke. I was like, it's very different, a very different experience um, that I've had and, you know, and, and in contrast to what, what it kind of surprised me was the majority experience, which was feeling unheard. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that, that my whole life I've spent learning to listen without offering a, an opinion. Oh boy. 
because you know the because the it, it was a <clears throat> it was not my instinct right and i've i've known a lot of strong people who have who have said over and over since the time i was 22 years old i i'm going to i'm uh, i had a bad day today i'm going to talk about it to you and i would like you to just listen and that was a uh, you know, that was a something that when I was 18, 19, 20, it was really hard for me to just listen. But I learned, I learned to do it. It's, the, it's like you say, it's, um, it's one of the things you, you do in a relationship. I'm trying to avoid the elephant in the room. Um, it's, I think that what you're describing is absolutely true. And I think that for something like 25 years now, we've looked at it as this Mars and Venus thing where, um, I mean, I'll, I'll speak for myself. It, I didn't realize how terrible I was at just listening to people mm-hmm. for a very long time. I realize I'm, I'm still not as good at it as I, as I can be, um, but I'm at least aware that I need to just fucking relax and let the other person talk sometimes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> not just because, you know, well, one thing also with, with both of us, this is not an excuse or a, to, a forgiveness, but when we say things like, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think that shows in some ways that we're, it's not just that we want you to agree with us. Like I'm constantly doubting whether I said what I was actually thinking, whether my thought made any sense and whether I'm really just having, if I'm just not realizing I have an aphasia yet, I'm constantly thinking, do I make any sense when I speak to people? So when I hear myself and I say things like, does that make any sense? Like, I know how needy that sounds, but part of that is actually me going like, Ah, my brain just runs all the time. It's just going and going and going. And sometimes it's like a little gumball machine. You pop the little slot open and sometimes stuff comes out. And I'm just not even sure if that constitutes anything meaningful. So I yeah. think part of that is when you say things like it becomes a tick, but it starts out as from, from not a terrible place. Um, I mean, to me, that's even different from, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, yeah. You know what I mean? Or like, you know, Walter Subcheck, am I wrong? Like those are, those all mean kind of different things. I yeah, think. it was, it was, uh, it, there was a little bit of adjustment uh, when you and I got to be friends, when you would get to the end of something and go, right? And I would hear... <laughs> that means I'm done talking. <laughs> well, or I would hear like that you expected a, an affirmation. And then later, later on, as time went on, I realized that you were seriously asking, correct? Am I correct? <laughs> Yeah. Or sometimes, you, yeah, for sure. You know, do you do, you, do does what I've just said, and does my perception square with your perception? But but beyond that, the beyond the beyond the Mars and, and Venus part, it um, it is something that I think most men, uh, probably in America, men of our age, ha- are really thinking about this. Maybe I'm projecting here, but mm. are thinking about it seriously for the first time because we've expected that everybody was going to listen to us and what we had to say. And if they didn't, they were they were dumb or black, mm. like that they just couldn't get like how what we were saying should be receive wisdom in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's um, <clears throat> I'm finding it a very, a very uh, interesting challenge to get better at that. And I was back to that other personal example that was, man, I used to be the worst. Like if I had a, like a girlfriend who had a bad day, I was, I was always ready to just be the problem solver before she could even, she would exhale, start to speak a sentence. And I would start coming up with ideas. Why don't you take a bath? You want to take a walk? Should we get some dinner? Oh, that probably wasn't what you thought it was. And I'm offering all these things to do what to a solve a problem, but importantly, B just make her feel better. And the thing is, that's not my job. Like, it's, I, I'm not there to make her feel better. I'm there to shut the fuck up and let her describe what it is, well, work through al- what she's feeling. Although part of your job as being as being a, you know in a relationship with somebody is to make them feel better, and that's what's that's, but just not not always on my terms. Yeah, I think there's a difference confusing. between making somebody making somebody feel better about something versus just trying to make everything go back to this the way that you're comfortable with. 
I mean, this is the primary, the primary problem in my mother's relationship with my sister, which is that my mother is a solver and my sister wants to talk about her feelings. And so although their, you know, their mother daughter bond is, is very strong. My sister comes in and starts to vent about her day. And my mom says, well, why don't you, why don't you talk to your boss tomorrow and tell him that, that that's not acceptable. And my sister goes, ah, the problem, you know, and she, then she starts to talk about her day a little bit more. And my mom says, well, why don't you just, you know, like right. if you just enrolled at the community There's college, so many problems with that. And Ugh. it's just my mom's nature to do that because you know, it's very hard to, because the, because the expression, my, my, the, the way that my sister expresses her frustration about her day is very discomforting, right? Or discomforting. Yeah. Where, you know, where she's expressing frustration by means of saying like, it's just, it's, in, it's unjust that my, you know, that my boss just doesn't see that it's not, you know, like I should be able to have a five minute smoking break. And, you know, my sister's mad and she's, and she's venting. And my mom says, well, you know, I mean, did you think to take your five minute smoking break, you know, when you go to the bathroom or whatever, you know, my mom's trying to. And now at that point, she's more like an editor or, or a coach where she's trying to like help improve performance. Yeah. A coach. And, and, but part of that is that, that, like my, I think I, I've been I've been watching this dynamic for forty years, but you know my mom feels like my sister's agitation is something that she wants to help resolve. Sure, that, that, that's that, the biggest part in some ways, right? Right, and that that resolution, that part of that resolution is that my sister isn't seeing or you know that that she could change her behavior and and resolve this problem or that she could take a different tact and what and my sister is wants just to vent her emotions and then the the feeling will pass and then she'll go back to doing the behavior that got her in trouble with her boss you know and 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 and, and partly my perception of it is the is back to a introvert extrovert um, polarity, where you know Susan wants to vent her emotions. She does not want to solve her problems, and my mom wants to solve problems so that emotions do not ever enter into it. It's a, it's a completely different paradigm. A different paradigm, and yeah. the, and 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 watching it over the years be characterized in the press as a as a Mars Venus issue, but then watching it play out between the two, you know, the two primary women in my family, I've had I've been forced to see it as a as part of the either introvert extrovert uh, paradigm or the uh, emotional rational, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah, right, and and honestly, like sometimes I laugh and laugh and laugh because I hear my Sisters start to go on something, and I realize that it it isn't a, you know, she just is, she just needs to offload her feelings about something. And I look over at my mom, and I'm like, please stay out of this. Just please stay out of it. But there are other times when listening to uh, my sister vent, like, I also feel like you you yell about this every afternoon. It's the same problem every time. Why don't you just stop taking your smoke break right under your boss's window? Is that so crazy? 
and and it's a because ultimately like I don't want to hear the same emotional vent every day like it is emotional venting of that kind is actually stressful Mm -hmm. to even just to be a passive witness just to be a listener and that's the that's the relationship part of it where you realize and the and the thing that emotional venters maybe don't always see is that listening to them is um requires energy also and listening even to, if they, even if they're not in the room i mean just kind of preparing for going like wow i hope today went okay <laughs> yeah right i mean and and this is the this is the classic problem that introverts have with extroverts which is that introverts are very very aware of what extroverts need <laughs> extroverts are typically not even conscious that there is such a thing as an introvert let alone that an introvert has different needs mm-hmm. and so you know my sister is conscious of the fact that that we you know that we somehow are bad listeners but not aware of how much it takes out of us to listen to um, a litany of complaint where it seems like the solution is easy. And this, you know, this is a, this is a, um, it's, and and when I say us, it's only that my mom and I have a similar nature. I got out of, I got out of that game a long time ago in my own family. Uh, That's where pretending to read has been (laughs) a fantastic strategy in my in my whole adult life pretend pretending to read struggling to actually read while people are fighting in the other room but so that you know that uh that communication style like right now we're in an era where listening and talking are very they're you know very au courant different different ways of listening or being you know being sort of challenged to listen better but the but the awareness that Listening is also a very active activity, and if you are listening actively, it is it it is a strain. It takes you know not not a not a not necessarily a painful strain, but it is an exercise. It does take vitamins. It it isn't it is if it isn't passive, then that means it's yeah. If there's not an effort, the person's probably not really listening. And right. They're probably and, barely even hearing. And that effort is also, you know, that effort is also real. And for some, for a lot of introverts, like that, that effort is, uh, makes them need to go sit in a dark room and uh, with a wet towel over their head. But there's also an element of, um, I guess I always use this word wrong. Now I'm sensitive about it. But there's also an element of having to inertia, um, inertia or momentum, mm-hmm. velocity, torque. Uh, mm-hmm. There's an element of empathy. And um, I think that, I don't know. I'm not sure if that's exactly the right word, but I think one way to think about empathy is that uh, it's easy to be empathetic. It's easy to feel the feelings or understand the feelings of somebody who has the same feelings as you do. It's very, you know what I mean. When when yeah. somebody has, it has been, you know, if uh, if you have a, God forbid, you've got a sibling that died, and you talk to somebody who recently had a sibling that died, you might be really a good person to talk to because you you're probably somebody who can understand what they're going through. You know, it, it, I'm sure that can get even more specific. But no matter what it is, it's it's not it's not as difficult to have empathy for somebody that you think a has the same feelings as you, and importantly, b deserves to have those feelings, mm-hmm. right? I think where it gets challenging though, and where you get into the real actual idea of empathy, is when you start trying to understand 
not just how somebody feels, but why they are, how they appear to you, whether they deserve that feeling or not. That's true empathy. True empathy, and I'm not saying I'm any good at this, but it's what I'm working toward is to get better at going, gosh, it sure is easy to chunk everybody into one of these 11 boxes that I've got. And that sure makes life a lot easier. I can then focus on like one or two of these boxes most of the time and just mm-hmm. know the rest is garbage people. The, the difficult part is that to become a truly empathetic person, and, and I'm going somewhere with this, to become a truly empathetic person, you have to get good at understanding what's not just on the surface, whether they, you think that they're a good and deserving person to have those feelings, whether you think their grievances are um, appropriate, whether mm. you think their ideas about what should change are realistic, that, you know... It's very it's very easy to get shortcuts about those things to where you can just write all those people off. But I talked before about teachers. I think to be a good teacher and to be uh, maybe to be a good um, I'd say politician because that implies mostly that you're there to electioneer. But mm. to be a good public servant, you have to have an element of empathy. You have to be realistic about knowing what's what can be accomplished. But it seems to me you have to become very empathetic about listening and hearing from people where you may not even understand where they're coming from. You're still not trying to figure out whether they're a chemtrails person. But does that make sense? <laughs> like the here I am. Does that make sense? But that to me, that's the empathy part. Is empathy is not just feeling for people who you like and agree with. Empathy is learning to to try and understand or at least hear people that you maybe absolutely don't agree with but Mm. to at least hear them out and figure out like why they're how they are and then live with the fact that maybe you'll just never agree and maybe that doesn't make them the worst person in the world they're just really just fucking different well it's interesting because in uh star trek new generation is that what it's called is it new or next i've been criticized for this Criticized, or have you just been observed? Have you just been listened to? And people have heard you say Star Trek New Generation. I'm not putting this out. Hant. The the house is being hanted. Okay, so in the second generation of uh, Star Trek. In uh, in the latest generation. Not the latest, I'm sorry. In the original next new generation. generation, So what we're talking about is episode two, episode negative two of the new generation of Star Trek. There, this, is, this is the one with Professor X and the guy from the cruise. Professor X. Professor X. Professor X. Is that his name? Did I say that wrong? Jean, Jean-Luc Picard? Uh, Jean-Luc Jean, Jean 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 Picard. Um, you know, there is an empath character on the ship. And that was, you know, at the time uh, when that show came out, it was like, oh, wow. Wouldn't, isn't that a kind of... That's a cool bit of writing to imagine uh, the future, to, to imagine a science future, which we're all geeking on, having not just a doctor and a science officer and a navigator and a chemist, but also a feelings professional, right? When, the, when Star Trek New Generation first came out, it was the first time that we had ever seen a feelings professional on a science show. And that was, uh, that was kind of a little bit of a, like a brain tickle. Is that Troy? Commander Troy. Right. And so, but, but, but very clearly at that point in time, it was, um, and, and in the writing of that show, there were, you know, there were scripts, there were storylines where someone needed to go talk to Troy, go talk to Commander Troy. She was the she was the one who had the 
the expertise. And sometimes, you know, there would be an alien that they, an alien intelligence that they were encountering. And at that point, they hadn't had any Troy scripts for a while. And so they would, they'd figure out a way that Troy needed, they needed her wisdom and insight to interact with this alien life form. But for the most part, it was still that they were using science to explore the universe and more often than not the way to encounter an alien life form was to put the shields up and power up the photon torpedoes. Um, right now we're going through a, a cultural phase where empathy, where someone like you is being encouraged by, you know, um, the, the, the multiplicity of voices in the, in the world to really, really, focus on empathy but there are empaths in our world and then there are people that will never you know that uh, who are constitutionally really incapable of empathy and empathy is just another one of our talents like sports ball like being able to run or jump and some people are really really good at it and some people need to really train to activate it in themselves. And there are, there are cultural dampers that we put on it. But then there are, there's a whole swath of the world, 25% of the people probably, that just have no empathy and, or, or, or little empathy. And so I don't think that empathy is a thing that everybody can have. And I think it's something that it's great that we're, we talk about and are aware of. But like there are also I mean, I've been on the Joko cruise five times. I know what it, I know what it's like to be in a world where empathy is the, is the language currency, but there are a lot of people on the spectrum for whom empathy is a, is a distant idea. And, um, I don't, you know, I don't know where we're going to be in 20 years on this, but, and I'm, and I'm glad we're talking about it, but there's also like, my mom has as much empathy as she can have. And it isn't an, it isn't enough for my sister, and never will be enough. Right. And over the years, I have said to my sister, like, you're the one that has this deep capacity for empathy. Can you not show any for your mother, who has <laughs> no real capacity for it? And that's where I've found the the greater struggle. Like my mom can say, I don't know, I don't know how to empathize with this. It just seems like complaining to me, but I know that about myself and mm -hmm. I, and I try to not talk. I try to, you know, to, I, she's gone as far as to try to bake her way out of it. What if I made cookies, you know, like literally try to try anything. Wow. But the, the empathetic one, the one with all the feelings, my sister doesn't, has never been able to find the reservoir of feeling on behalf of the person with no empathy. So it's kind of the ironic part. Yeah. And it, and it, and so often it is in this conversation where it's like, yeah, uh, you know, this person has trouble sharing your feelings. Can you, can you feel that? Can, do you have feeling? Can you share those feelings? So I don't know, you know, like I, I think that, I'm definitely not a science officer. I'm much more really of an empath, <laughs> but not so much of, a, of an empath that I'm not ready to power up some photon torpedoes. No, I understand. That's part of the job. 
Right. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. a you lot get of, a mission. A lot, I you mean, get lives at stake. Explore new worlds, yes. Seek out new civilizations, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hit them with photon torpedoes. <laughs> Roddenberry's dream. <laughs> yes. So uh, it's a struggle. Yeah. Well, as long as we're talking about our feelings, um, the uh, you know, there's this there's this other thing that uh, again, I, I always feel like God, I'm just saying something that's so obvious, but it's something I want, I, I find uh, very almost impossible to deal with in in my own life, and so I find it triple impossible to try and be something that I lightly, gently try to impart on my kid, mm-hmm. which is this really um, strange strange message about how much you can actually change about stuff at a given time in the world and how much you can change about other people. I love that you just said impart on my kid instead of impart to my kid. And that as a, as a dad, that it's absolutely what it feels like. Comprised of. Listen, I am going to impart this on you. (laughs) (laughs) I hate myself, (laughs) but here's, here's what it, here's what it comes down to. I mean, here's an example. We get up to the, I don't know why I'm always talking about crossing the street, except it's something we do a lot. And so it's something we have to think about a lot. It's something where I want her to be actively engaged in the process of crossing the street. Uh, I've talked about this a lot in, in you don't other dance places. Dance across the street. You don't go across the street without looking. You, you don't... go across the street like you're like you're in war. Like you 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 know. It, but but it's such a it's such a delicate operation to try and to ex- explain to a little kid. Here's what I don't want to do. There's a million things I don't want to do. I don't want to make them careless on the one end. On the other end, I don't want to make her scared. Nope. And so I try to impart something in between, which which is that th- there's something very complicated going on here. The basics are things like look left, right, and left. But then keep looking. Keep making on ta- eye contact. Keep going across. But then the thing that I, I, I want to say very gently is even if we do this perfectly, things can still go wrong. Right. And we have no control over that. Right. And understanding that has a strange, and I'm not about to explain this to a seven-year-old because I barely understand it, but there's a certain existential freedom in realizing that things always could go wrong, even if you do your best. But that doesn't mean you don't still try to do your best. And so in, in that kind of an instance, I guess I'm, the larger message I'm trying to impart on her is mm. is that – uh, and the thing that I need to learn all the time is that just because they're, let's say I, I try to be empathetic and I fail, I see other people failing at being empathetic. It doesn't mean we can't keep trying. Mm-hmm. Like even if the system is broken, we still have to do what we think is right. And we still have to, and God willing, in the right atmosphere, we, st- we continue to learn and get better. And we don't just, you know, um, dig in around something that may be an old dead or bad idea. But, you know, but part of sanity in life is realizing that on, you know, um, you, you, let's say you get to this part of thinking empathetically. Empathetic is wrong. I mean, justice, you could put it in, in a million different ways, but right. thinking about more than just your own dick in a given day. Right. And just getting to a point where you can go, look, I, I want to really try to understand where other people are coming from. And then accept, you know what? I don't understand where that person's coming from. They're kind of a dick. Yeah. And then go, that's, I just got to move on. It doesn't mean I'm going to treat them badly, <laughs> but it means, it doesn't mean that the life ends because I can't settle this one relationship. That just means that that's just how life is. Because it all is a question of how well my filter can make me feel like I understand how the fucking world works. When I yeah. will never understand how the world works. Well, you have a pretty good sense of how the world works. Yeah. Look, it spins in one direction only. Mm, this is, right? I'm trying to move a little bit toward your, uh, towards your project. Because I'm, well, I'm curious how these kinds of the reason I'm bringing these up is first of all to show you that I, I struggled to be a person, but also <laughs> that like how does this affect you? I mean, how is your listening tour going? Uh, it's going really well, and you know the uh, the 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 danger the the danger of of thinking of progress is that 
if you're a historian or at all interested or looking back at all, there is a feeling of progress over time, right? That we're just, we're not confronting the same problems that we were in 1650. Well, it's not like, not like the Middle Ages where we actually, on the grand scale of things, did move backward for a while, right? Well, and in some ways, like learning moved backward, but, uh, well, yeah, technology, sure, like moved, um, we, we lost a lot of ground, but we were also going through a phase uh, where we were developing through monotheism a whole complex uh, set of new ideas about what, what constituted a person and what constituted our ethical basis, right? The, the, idea of, the idea of justice that we have today is a product of all that religious churning that happened in the Middle Ages, which we think of as the Dark Ages. So although we lost astronomy for a while and maybe lost the Roman concept of the aqueduct for a while, and lost, we, we lost a lot of intellectual ground as we moved from a world where, uh, from a polytheistic animist world to one that was rooted in this idea that there was one God and you could have a, you know, you could have a personal relationship with them and not just that you're out in the woods burning sheep bones to appeal to the God of, of, um, of scabies to relieve your suffering, but that you, you know, that your whole life and all of life is like rooted in this central authority. That's where the, you know, that's where, where all of our contemporary ideas of, of, um, the rights of man come from. And so it wasn't just a, it wasn't that a lot was lost. We were just building a new thing for a while. And, and, and so here we are and we are, we've made tremendous progress. There's lots and lots of progress yet to make. It's all thought technology and we're in a, we're in a, a mode right now that's very active the generation that followed ours and the generation that followed them is just bigger than we are and louder than we are and maybe the biggest, loudest generation ever. And they're going to set the tone a lot more than we did or are capable of. And there's, you know, the, 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 the spigot is wider. So not everybody's coming from the same place. And that's a very, that's a, that, that's the, maybe one of the hardest things to grapple with. Because there's, as you try to resolve disagreement and you realize that, that no one even accepts even one basic premise that the person they're arguing with accepts. And that's kind of unprecedented. I mean, there, it, it, uh, even 50 years ago, the basic premises were all commonly held for the most part. Or if you, if you were an outsider to those, you didn't hold those, you at least knew what they were. And you and you looked at yourself in in opposition to those those common ideas, but there are a lot of people now uh, who just don't even know the first thing about what the other person where the other person's coming from. Not even the first thing, and they're not especially interested. Mm -hmm. 
you know, uh, when you think about, I don't know if you, there was a, f- a really cool article in the New York Times about Obama's visit to this little South Dakota town to give the commencement speech at their little technical college. And I think a big part of the reason he went there was that he had, he'd been to 49 of the 50 states as <laughs> got president. The letter, got the letter from that little girl. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And so he came to South Dakota to give the commencement speech at this little college. But this article was written, uh, this reporter just went to the town and talked to a bunch of locals before Obama arrived. And South Dakota was overwhelmingly a Republican state. No one in this little town voted for Obama. And in the advance of him arriving, the reporter talked to all these people who were like, he wants to make it a Muslim country and... And he doesn't even, you know, it's a, just all that usual stuff. And then Obama came and hundreds of people in the town turned out, went down to the airport to watch the plane land. As he drove through the town, the reporter was, you know, followed this group of people that he'd been talking to already. He or she, I don't know, actually, uh, uh, I, I didn't look at the name of the reporter, but followed the, uh, followed their responses and they were all thrilled that Obama waved to them, that they saw the president and then they watched his speech on television and they were moved to tears that he was talking about their town and you know, and then he he was only, he was only on the ground for a couple of hours, drove his car back to the airport again, you know, people crowding the streets to see him off he flies. And at least the, you know, through the narrow lens of this reporter's experience, a lot of those people were, their opinion about Obama was transformed by just that tiny little bit of physical contact hmm. where they went from thinking he was the antichrist to admiring him and thinking that he had given a good speech and like were surprised and astonished, uh, and, and, and touched and moved by the whole experience. And of course that's true, right? I mean, I was vociferously against Reagan, but if I had ever seen Reagan, let alone see, been close to Reagan, I'm sure I would have swooned. Mm-hmm. And that, that sense of, of how much we share and how little actual differences we have. You only get that experience by being around other people. By you know, by try, I mean, th- we talk about this all the time. These d- disagreements on the internet, where people are just screaming at each other, and if they were in the same room, they would be, you know, fast friends or like. And anyone who has ever traveled through Alabama knows that they're the friendliest people in the world, and and terrible racists, but. But, uh, but wonderful people in so many other ways. Not as a, you know, not apologia, but just a normal human experience. And that's what we don't share anymore. And so being out on the campaign trail and talking to everybody, like I am the focus of a lot of energy directed at me. I'm the hub of that wheel. And I'm meeting people from a lot of different spheres and all I wish is that they could all meet each other. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm seeing this incredible diversity of, of thinking. I'm meeting a lot of 25-year-olds like the, like the girl uh, in the 
uh, Louis C.K. store who at 25 years old already has all the wisdom in it and uh, that she thinks she's ever going to need. And what, you know, and I, I, whatever that episode is trying to convey, what we don't know is six months later, is her store closed because she's rude to customers? I mean, right. mm-hmm. that's the, that's the, um, that's the thing that that kind of like, well, I'm doing fine. And you know, maybe you need to get with the times because blip, and it's just like, well, you, I mean, or like so many 25 year olds before you, you think you can start a store and be rude to people and you don't need to be nice to old white men because they're irrelevant to you. And then your store closes because you're rude and a bad uh, customer service person. And then you learn like so many people have before you that customer service is part of the equation. And so I'm meeting a lot of very active 25 year olds politically active 25 year olds who think they already know everything there is to know about a city, about government. That's a, of, that's a great age for that. It's incredible. And when that's, I was, that's, tw- that, 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 that's really the perfect age to feel like, you know, everything. Yeah, right. You come so easily. You're, you, you are very smart at that age, uh, maybe smarter than 40 year olds because you still have all your brain cells, but what you, you know, but what you don't know is all the stuff that you don't know. And so I'm talking to people all the time who are just like, well, the solution is simple. And uh, and you go, well, that is a simple solution until you start to become aware that every solution causes 42 other problems you didn't anticipate. And they go, well, <laughs> no. And it's like, yes. I mean, I, 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 have, I have conversations all the time with, with people who seem – with young people I'm talking about mm-hmm. who do not understand that they did not invent the civil rights movement. And I'm like, you know, people have been doing this work for a long time and the struggles have been different. The challenges have been different, but you are here able to speak this way because people have been doing this work for a long time. And so the indignation you feel that we're not moving fast enough, I would just like to direct your attention back just a few years to where we were then and imagine how indignant you would feel. Like, uh, this is, this is, you know, like, and, and I'm not saying that by way of saying like, respect your elders. I'm just saying, get a little context. These ideas, just because, just because Twitter is new and Snapchat is new does not mean that the ideas that are being expressed there are equally new and unprecedented and it's a it's a real challenge and i so I, the the excitement of the campaign is that i'm talking to people from we had a we had a meeting yesterday of my volunteer squad it was just people that had offered to volunteer for the campaign and 25 people showed up on mother's day and they were all ages from 20 to 65 and there and it was like a a real cross-section of people in seattle people who had only lived here for six months people who had lived there their entire lives uh people with a master's in social work people that had worked political campaigns people that were just artists and i don't mean just artists to say that being an artist is lesser but just that that's you know that they are coming from the arts place and engaging in this campaign out of a like pretty confused about 
what is even happening mm-hmm. uh, politically. And it was incredibly inspiring just to have all these people in the room and listen to all their, you know, a couple of teachers, a couple of, of um, you know, people from an activist background. And what I really wanted to do was just, just say, let's all sit here for four hours and just talk about what, you know, like, just start. What's the single most important problem facing the city? And it, it, we could, it would have been a four-hour-long roundtable. We didn't have that time, but that's what I'm getting every day is this roundtable where it's all being you know, sort of directed at me, either people trying to train me, mm-hmm. people trying to school me, people trying to connect with me, people hoping that I will recognize their issue and then broadcast it for them, you know, and it's all really compelling and like it's moving, it's moving my heart. Uh, and that's the, I think the best thing about it, you know, we, you get to be 45 and you're like, Oh, maybe I'm, you know, maybe my heart can't move anymore. Right. But I sat in a, I, I sat in a meeting where 20 people got up and spoke about the fact that the Metro bus system had raised the bus fare 25 cents, 50 cents. And at first it felt like, how, uh, the, uh, I mean, I, I, I know that there's always going to be somebody that's mad about anything, but in actually listening to 20 different people testify that they were trying to survive on $750 a month, and that they needed to take the bus, that you know they needed to take five buses every day, mm, and that that what seemed like a small fare increase actually was was um, prohibiting them from getting certain foods at the grocery store, and that that they had that they were supporting their children and their elderly inca- incapacitated parent. And they were the only earner. And you, you hear one of those and you're like, whoa, that person has like a really bad scene. But when you hear 20 people tell a story like that and you realize that these are the 20 of these people who took another two buses to come to this meeting to talk about it. Right. Right. So you have to think that they are, they're a small percentage of a, a very small percentage of the number of people who are surviving at this, you know, at a level where a 50 cent bus fare change or a 25 cent bus fare change is a significant change in their, in their welfare. And you just go, holy shit. Like this is like politics is important work and income inequality is desperately real Somewhere in this town right now, there are people who are, who are, you know, throwing their Xbox in the garbage because somebody spilled some pop on it or somebody spilled a drop of pop on it and they don't like it being sticky. And, you know, and over here, I'm sitting in a basement listening to these stories and it's just like, bow, wow, 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 wow. You know, but at the same time, like, I've been thinking about Jeff Bezos a lot. <laughs> I know you think about Jeff Bezos. I've been thinking about him a lot because he's a, he's a, a big figure here in Seattle. 
and he's an important key to what the, what's going to happen in the city. And he kind of keeps himself at a distance. But he has a lot of employees. A lot of them are like good people. The culture of Amazon is very circle the wagons. But I don't know how much you're aware of Jeff Bezos's um, Blue Origin project. I don't think I know what that is. Jeff is one of, uh, like SpaceX and like Elon Musk, Jeff is also a space visionary. And he is building a manned space program. I had no idea. A lot of people don't know because he keeps it kind of, he's not real publicity hungry about it. He's not a showboater like Elon Musk. Um, but he is, you know, using his own resources to build a space capsule for uh, normals, for regulars to go into space. And it is pretty far along his 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 quiet space program, like far enough along that they had a launch not very long ago uh, of a of like an actual rocket that they had designed, not a rocket that they bought from Russia, not a rocket that huh. they, that not a used rocket, but a brand new rocket that they have designed from the ground up and constructed and launched. I can't. I feel kind of dumb that I did not know this. I don't. You shouldn't feel dumb because they're very quiet about it. It's a rocket that. Let me. Let me just put it. Uh, let me like put it in a different context. It, it's a rocket that, when the, when the, the bottom stage is done launching the capsule, it actually parachutes back and lands with like retro rocket firing, like lands on the ground. Hmm. Doesn't it? Doesn't fall into the ocean. It's like it returns to Earth. The rocket. And the capsule has like, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. Six people can ride on a, you know, and their plan is in the very near future to start allowing people to buy seats on this rocket to go up and do a like near earth orbit weightless space experience. So here's this guy. He owns this company. He's, he is, he's very wealthy. He lives in Seattle He's hiring a lot of people, and he is also building a space program that's also here in, in the Seattle area. And as you know, I'm a big supporter of space exploration. Mm -hmm. I think that's super great. And the old canard that, you, that we shouldn't pour money into NASA because all that money could go to build low income housing. I've always felt like was a, was a, was a bad argument or like I understood, I understand it from a liberal point of view uh, that it seems like there's a limited number of dollars and why would you spend it going to space when people were poor? But space exploration is like at the, at the soul of what I think we should be doing and we should also find the money to, um, feed and house people and what and where that money should come from is not space exploration but all the people that have gold bathtubs right or some find a way somehow to tap into the the money and the energy that is going to build gold bathtubs for people and channel that money over but now that i'm spending a lot of time listening to people that need an extra 25 cents a day just to ride the bus 
like the context of all this stuff and this whole conversation is just like personally changed for me. And I still want Jeff Bezos to explore space. I just also want to, you know, to rope everybody in all the visionaries to, to regather them into the conversation around, around my town in Mm -hmm. particular. Right. And try to figure out like we have, we have this energy and this exploratory energy is great, but I also want to say that it's a, it's an equal it's equally exciting to explore the idea of no one going hungry and it doesn't seem as exciting it's not as glamorous you don't get a spacesuit for it but it is also like part of this feeling of progress mhm you right the part of the feeling of like we keep moving and doing better and none of these things are, it's not resolved that there will always be people starving. Well, I, I don't want to sound cynical, but it, it sounds like, and again, I, I have no idea how somebody like that thinks, somebody with that kind of dough, which of course nobody ever feels like they have as much money as everybody thinks they do. But, mm-hmm. but in that case, I mean, that will be a rounding error. Like even if they, if even that looked like a hundred thousand dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, like me, you know, maybe a day's worth of their time, um, just just on appearances like the optics of it alone it seems like why would you not do that and that that's the that is the thing you know when 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 you're talking to 25 year olds and they're like well why doesn't jeff bezos just pay the extra quarter for everybody it's like yes but the number of those things the 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 bus fare the um the housing problem the mental health problem right like what what we what we really need every person i talk to is like what we really need (laughs) and you go we really do need a better mental health system where there are you know we closed the asylums and put all the people that used to be housed in asylums back on the streets yep and really what we should probably do is build some asylums again or go get those ones that we decommissioned before they fall into the ground and paint them and, and get them working again. And now we think about them differently. We don't just one flew over the cuckoo's nest them, but there are some people that need a place to be and that, and they're never going to be reintegrated into society. Well, besides, and th- besides nowhere or jail. Besides nowhere or jail, right. Besides a doorway or jail. And it needs to be a thing that society funds and it needs to be a comfortable, safe place. And some of those people are going to be violent or angry or, you know, and there, it, there need to be trained people there. Like at every step of the way, we need, we need so much, right? These facilities. Uh, think about all the, the single mothers who are, who end up homeless and they end up homeless because it's fucking hard to stay on top of the game and you've got two kids and all of a sudden you're living in your car and you don't even think of yourself as homeless. You're just in between places. You're living in your car and the kids have got to get to school and you've got to get to work and you're in your car. And, and that mother isn't even letting on to her kids that she's in trouble. She's just like, Hey, we're having fun. We're living in our car for a little while while mama figures out the next move. 
and what we could do to help her or to make sure that that, you know, that, 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 that for a couple of weeks she's doing that and then she reaches it, then something else bad happens. The car breaks down. Right. Or, you know, and then she really needs. There's no wiggle room. Right. Then she really needs help. And when she really needs help at that point, when she's like, oh, fuck, I'm up against the wall, she rolls into some place and they're like, sit down and fill out this form. Now you're on a waiting list. Six months from now, we'll call, you know, and it's just like, no, there's, we don't have enough wiggle room for so many people. And, and yet we have obscene amounts of money, right? Rich kids on Instagram is also happening simultaneous to this. And that, that does inflame people. And it, and, and the, and the people that would tell us that it's unrelated are wrong. (laughs) There's, you know, there, there, it is related, but what is it? What is in our power to do? And I think that the era of, you know, the era of armed revolution is in our past. The era of really of using law as a as a cudgel is maybe in our past, just because. Those rich kids on Instagram have the best lawyers you can get. I think we're entering in an, into an era where we have to, where empathy actually is the agent and where we say, hey, this is part of, this is part of your wealth and success. It's an, it's an, it is ultimately an anti, um, tea party argument or an anti, uh, Ayn Rand argument which is Ayn Rand, I'm sorry, and Ayn, <laughs> Ayn Rand, um, which is that we are all in this together. Your wealth did not come to you sure, uh, purely by your own ingenuity, but because we have provided this incubator, which is our whole culture. And now, you know, like you say, wouldn't it be cool if in addition to, to building a private space station or in addition to building uh, really cool electric cars, we also were able to bolster the, the, the part of the, of the couch where the stuffing is coming out. And, you know, do you start making that argument on city council or do you start making that argument on your award-winning podcast? <laughs> like at what point do we get enough people together into this new way of thinking that's that's less shouty and finger pointy and that's more just like a bunch of people standing there with compassionate looks on their faces saying hey we 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 don't begrudge you your success but you know chip in and that that right. doesn't mean go work for houses for humanity it means like chip in right here well this is the 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 que- interesting question to me um is what you're describing, it sounds really sensible. It sounds like on the face of it that there should be something – let's put it this way. It's not one of those things that is a basically impossible problem to solve. Mm-hmm. It, there is obviously something that can be done by somebody over some amount of time. Let's just take that as read. Okay. Right. So the question is um, – how in your approach or your strategy or however you want to phrase it, how do you differ 
from the other candidates and what you would choose to do differently in order to make something like that happen? <laughs> the exact question that uh, that gets asked every day. I'm so sorry. And no, it's good. It's good. It's a, I'm it, trying to be more empathetic. It's the good. It is a good question, and you know, ultimately, the the first thing I can say is. Uh, no other candidate is talking about this stuff at all this way, right? Because the because the the conception is that all we have at our disposal is either that we can sue someone or pass a law that um, that requires that they you know that that they and usually requires that they submit to a tax. I mean, the the tax is our is our only model. Tax but them. you could also, I mean, I, I'm, it seems like part of, part of what you do when you bring somebody in, I'm thinking this is a little bit random, but I'm thinking, for example, of like when you bring people into like a foundation board, mm-hmm. you might bring somebody into a foundation board because they're a rich person and they'll theoretically give you a bunch of money, but it could also be more importantly that they're good at getting money from other people mm-hmm. that, you know, through, I don't want to say connections, that's the wrong word, but it seems like, you know, you could also be kind of a statesman who's mm-hmm. good at making that case to people where they go, well, of course I'd love to help with that, and I'll get my buddies to help with that. Right. And Bill Clinton is great at this. Bill Gates is good at it. Um, but it is, um, you know, it's so often that the, 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 what we perceive to be the problem is, I mean, Bill Gates is, has done incredible work uh, providing clean water to people around the world. He's mm-hmm. saving tens, hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, it's very much less glamorous to to build a facility in Seattle for homeless mothers who have reached the end of their rope. There's no glamour in it, except um, except in the in the sort of a the big small picture, which is what if we built a city that had all of that that took care of everybody. It's also probably a, uh, if I could venture a guess, it's a difference in approach or outlook or um, c- composure. I guess mm-hmm. if you think about think about the people who, um, if you want to talk about entrepreneurs in particular, or people who made a lot of money, you know, through grit and determination and mm-hmm. maybe dirty dealings, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the point is, I, you know, in the same way that there are certain kinds of investors that are only interested in angel funding, there are certain kinds, you know, I, I would imagine that for most uh, budding philanthropists, they're, they're not as interested in the net at the bottom of, not that this is good or bad, they're not as interested in, the, in a system of nets at the bottom of the building as they are in potentially shoring up that top floor so people can't jump or even more deeply trying to fundamentally change why somebody would want to jump off that building. And so in that case, uh, I, I wonder if it's something where you talk about that not being very glamorous. It certainly isn't. And it's you know, again, the NIMBY stuff and all of that. I wonder if they'd be more interested uh, in some kind of programs that try to get it, get at that problem Maybe not as early as childhood education, and maybe not as late as a shelter, but somewhere in between, some kind of intervention type thing. You know what I mean? Is it, but I bet they'd be more interested in getting the problem earlier on. Well, but that is exactly the way that we've been thinking about it for you know the second half of the 20th century. And then it just becomes a series of costly experiments. Well, and just a kind of whack-a-mole. Like, y- yes, education is key and has is is proved, but you know, but who is proved to to uh, keep kids out of jail, 
right later on in life. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole other thing. Who, who wants to fund quality education in Seattle schools? There, uh, any any billionaire want to step up and do that? Um, hello, hello, step Is, right up. Are you still on the line? <laughs> like. Uh, the only way we have to fund Seattle schools is through a tax. Mm-hmm. And the only way that we are allowed to apply that tax is to the, you know, to everybody. And we can do it through car tabs or we can do it through property tax or we can do it, you know, w- there are only so many ways to, to, to fund it. And the rich people have really good, excellent ways of avoiding paying their tax. And so it falls to the middle class over and over and over. And it would be wonderful if someone stepped forward and said, I'll fund the Seattle schools with the rounding error on my, you know, on yeah. my uh, ego project over here. Uh, and then there would be people that are like, but, but what about the homeless mothers? And, you know, there's uh, my principle is that if we, I mean, we all want, we all want 40 years from now to have our city look and be a certain kind of pleasant, prosperous place. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine anybody nobody would that, Nobody would just reject that on the face of it. No one would reject it on the face of it. And everybody's got a different idea about how to get there. Um, and a lot of people are like, we just need to build taller buildings with bigger fences to keep people from jumping off. And then there are people that are like, well, the people that are falling off that building aren't jumping. They're getting pushed. I'm sorry, that was a poor analogy. But you know what I mean? Like, or mm-hmm. slipping or whatever. And there are a lot of technologists that do believe that the technology is just eventually going to make it impossible to be poor. But when you look at the way that that actually works, they're just uh, they're assuming trickle-down economics. They're using George Herbert Walker Bush's philosophy that a rising tide lifts all boats. And it just is demonstrably untrue, right? Uh, the, uh, the rich are getting richer. But I do believe that we can say Here's the city we want. Here's the city that we want. And this is what it should look like. And get everybody kind of on board for, the, for some basic principles. 40 years from now, there shouldn't be a homeless person in Seattle that has no other options. There's always going to be somebody who's like, fuck you, I'm going to live in a garbage can. But <laughs> most people don't want to. And a lot of the people that are living it, that are like, fuck you, I'm going to live in a garbage can. There comes that night in November where they're like, God damn it. This was a bad idea. Right. And in, and uh, we, and we're, we're such a punitive society and, uh, and a, and a moralistic one about, about homelessness and drugs and mental illness. We spend so much time saying, well, that single mother with her two kids should have smoked less pot in high school and done a little bit better and gone to tech school. You know, there's that, there's that instinct we, we have in, as Americans to be like, it's probably her fault. Yeah. And that judgmentalism keeps us from being able to have a, a a real compassionate system because there's always somebody that's going to say, I don't want my tax dollars to go to molly coddle these these whores. Right. And it's just like, well, you know what? That's really not how it is. And and we and and the most of us here in Seattle recognize that. And that's what you need. It's just the most of us. 
but to get to get that vision of the city and then start reverse engineering the practices rather than trying to build that city by each person saying, well, here's what we need. Here's what we need. Here's what we need. Get, get the picture first and then say, what does that look like? You know, that what, that's the 40 year plan. Now, what did that look like at 30 years? What did that look like at 20 years? How would we get there and, and build backwards from the, from the goal. And, and I think it will surprise us as we get like, what did that look like at 10 years? Oh shit. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what it looked like at 10 years. And so to get to there, we have to reevaluate what we're doing now. We can't just keep, you know, keep flopping around like a bunch of, uh, like a bunch of koi whose pond drained. We need a, we need to like, Get off, get off of this, get out of this rut and start doing some, some weird and wonderful stuff now that will put us there in 10 years, which isn't a solution, but it is, it's on the path to where we want to be in 20 years. Mm-hmm. So that's the story that I'm trying to, you know, bring to the, to this election. And, and that's what I'm trying to say about Seattle, that we've tried all the, We've tried all this incremental, like, well, what we need is, you know, we need to hire one more social worker to help fill out the forms at the office where you get in line for the, for emergency housing. And it's like, well, we need more than that. Right. We need to build, we need to build and we need to build across a a wide spectrum and we need to fund the schools as though we're going to have to keep funding the schools and not. Like the way we fund Seattle schools is we, we pass a bond for two years as though two years from now, maybe we won't have to pay for schools anymore. Right. And and in that example, um, if I understand what you're saying, it's like, well, how did they end up with that as the best solution? Yes, exactly. I mean, Harvard, (laughs) Harvard university figured out a long time ago that they needed an endowment, right? We don't have an endowment for our public schools. And, well, you know, whether that was gutted or whether it, you know, whether it was, it's just in this back and forth of like, oh, now, now we don't pay taxes. Now we do. This person is against it. This person thinks the schools are full of faggots. Like, how do we, how do we go against this? How do we depoliticize things like schools so that the state legislature doesn't decide that this, that, that because there was one gay art teacher in Shoreline that we don't teach art anymore. Um, Is that and, even vaguely close to a real world example? I mean, why the, why the, why the holy Jesus fuck don't we have money for schools in America? Right. Why are those things tied to car tabs? It's, it's bonkers, particularly mm-hmm. bonkers when you think that the state of California is subsidizing the water for a bunch of raspberry farmers and the city of Seattle has two, $3 billion on tap to build a tunnel under the city that will be obsolete, obsolete before the paint is dry. Right. Uh, but we, but, you know, <laughs> oh, that must be frustrating. It's really great. But if you put $3 billion in a, in an endowment fund and used 
and never touched the principal and just used the interest to pay for some facet of, I mean, it wouldn't pay for all the schools, but it would sure as shit go a long way to funding the schools in perpetuity. Right. But nobody's thinking about that. And so, you know, every year it's like, oh, shit, we don't have any money for libraries or schools. That, that's why the, the Bezos part of it kind of surprises me because I, I don't know what I'm thinking of in particular, but I'm, I'm remembering a few years back when it, it seemed very surprising to me to hear about how many um, leaders at big companies were speaking openly about what the achievement gap in America mm-hmm. and that basically they realized that it was getting harder to I don't know I want to say this happened 20 years ago but I could be remembering wrong but that basically it was it was obviously getting harder to hire into certain kinds of high-tech careers that they were already seeing that it was getting harder and they were having to do, do more stuff like try and hire people from overseas and I feel like I remember a lot of people saying hey look we need to invest in these kinds of careers for people who aren't even in school yet Right. Like these are the kinds of systems like that kind of, I remember first hearing that and thinking, wow, that is really forward thinking and really abstract in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. No direct benefits to any given company, no ROI. They could put on a form about that. Whereas somebody like Jeff Bezos, I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he's, or maybe Costco, any of those companies, Starbucks that are so associated with that area, it seems like kind of a no brainer. I'm sure they, you know, give out bottled water and T-shirts and balloons at festivals and stuff. But mm-hmm. it just seems like it was, seems like such a no-brainer to invest in the community mm-hmm. as a thing without any, let alone trying to make a community that would be a desirable place for people to move. You know, agreed. What I mean? there's, there's like, it seems like there's like half a dozen reasons why you would want to find the budget just even just to provide the nice things, let alone the essential things. Well, and that is that is assuming that. Uh, that I and it's an assumption that I think most of the the people making this argument make, which is that uh, the assumption that our schools are are uh, are basically trade schools, right? Just making the economic impact argument that if we have better schools, that makes better employees for Amazon, like that alone. That's a blunt a, instrument, but it's a pretty. It's, I'll take it. Yeah, right. It's a, that alone is a reason for for Costco or Microsoft or or Vulcan or Starbucks or or Amazon to take an interest in Seattle public schools. Then you get the opportunity. I mean, you know, way above that, a thousand miles above that, is the opportunity to be a true uh, benefactor and say schools need art programs. Schools need poetry. Schools need dance. Schools, you know, we're not just using schools as a training program for people to work in assembly scenarios or coding scenarios, which coding is being the modern assembly. Um, but we want to we want our schools to to create citizens because those are the people who are going to really advance the ball in thirty years and. You know, that's an argument that I think a lot of capitalists would be really interested in. Right. It just doesn't have it's just much easier to show up at the at the job fair with a bunch of balloons and say, you know, apply for a job as a coder here and um, you know, and then maybe you'll get a chance to join our program where we are uh we're building windmills 
in South America. Well, it just feels like wins all around because, you know, um, gosh, I don't want to get into San Francisco. But, you know, just thinking about. <laughs> My friend, like, you are already in to San Francisco. I know. But uh, we were, I was just talking with my wife about this and how i don't know it's, the funny thing about a bubble is that the longer the bubble sticks around and the bigger the bubble gets the irony is that the bubble is not actually getting stronger the bubble is getting weaker as it gets bigger mm -hmm. and that's true for soap bubbles and it's true for san francisco bubbles the bigger it gets the more we feel the huge impact of this bubble here mm -hmm. it's i mean it's bad i, I just i don't want to go into too much but it's bad here it's really really it's gross there's Supernova. a lot of gross stuff going on right now in san francisco because everybody wants to get in on this this you know growing bubble thing but you know again i'm not i'm not an economician but uh i think as that bubble gets bigger it does become a lot easier to burst and you don't have to look more than five or six years in the past to see what happened in a bubble, which is that everybody thought the housing prices were going to go up and up and up without regard to how those loans were being made and whether people should have them. And look, you know, look what happened there. So, I mean, how long is it going to be here before you got a bunch of people suddenly? And I'm not even talking about the earthquake scenario. I'm just talking about your basic economic tip where poop and suddenly the bubble's not there and there's a bunch of people with leases and mortgages on places that are suddenly within say six months you know 30 percent over market value 50 percent over market value you know what i mean yeah and that's it's the, the the scary part in some ways is you see so much destruction so many businesses that have been and families and artists and people who've been in town for dozens of years just going away because somebody else needs that space. Go, go, yeah. go, 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 go. Shutting down all these bars because these condos moved in here now. There's all this stuff. And like each one of those little things in uh, independent of one another is not like a huge momentous thing. Like any tragedy, it doesn't all happen in one day. But, you know, that really starts to add up until there's going to be a point, I think, where more and more people are going to go, I'm not really sure I want to live there. And it's going to get super expensive until the day it doesn't get expensive. And then we're going to have a cultural wasteland where everything was a little bit overpriced a few months ago and now what the fuck are we going to do? It's almost <laughs> like when Walmart when, it's like when Walmart moves out of town. It's like first they shut down every place, then Walmart moves and then you got nothing. It's that that's terrifying to me to you know that people are coming in here and treating a little bit like a gold rush town without necessarily investing much in what would keep this place sustainable and desirable for people. And this I mean we've talked about this before, but this is the moment in world history, I guess where we are, you know, we're up against the fact that a pure market is just a thought technology, right? <laughs> right, and, right, right. And the, the history of the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries were histories of political ideologies that attempted to rein in and govern market mercantilism. And we saw a lot of different attempts to do it. And, you know, unfortunately, some of those uh, attempts were very ideological. They came at a time when technology allowed people, you know, to literally stamp numbers on other people. Right. And mass murder them in conjunction with market reforms. <laughs> and that... Uh, really discredited a lot of that, uh, a lot of the ideology, and some of that ideology was way up in the sky, and it and it did not reflect the actual truth of people. Uh, but it doesn't 
mean that 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 or the end result is that we just accept that market is the god and people keep saying to me like well what are you going to i mean it's the you know it's the market you can't I mean, people want to come in they want to buy you can't stop them right and it's like the 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 market's a lot more comp, complex than that and it is governable well yeah and i mean it's it seems a little bit Ayn Rand and a little bit um um intellectually flabby to just say well supply and demand are these natural forces in the world because hella. <laughs> because it's fucking hella hella Ayn Rand. yes because uh, there is a lot more to it than that. I saw an article in the paper uh, in the last six months about it's become um, very easy. I don't know. I don't know why I always think about parking because, you know, the number of cars in San Francisco versus the number of spaces is just is completely bananas. Mm-hmm. And right now there are there. It's pretty easy. Like you can walk down the big street near my house and see almost every not almost every car, but probably a third to half of the cars have a disabled permit. If you have a disabled permit, you get to park in a meter for free. It's very desirable. And last I heard, the number of disabled permits that have been given out versus the number of spaces in the city, there's approximately twice as many just disabled permits. No way. I think that was accurate. <laughs> Here, here's here's another fun one. My wife uh, just changed jobs. Uh, she's gone back to uh, like a a real co- full-time career. And so she, she's going to this new, she's working at this, the nice new campus on uh, in town. But she found out that and of course, it's it's impossible to, to park. You know, yeah. you, you you could take Muni, but then that's going to be an hour and a half to two hours. So she drives a lot, and that that might be thirty bucks a day. She found out that at the main campus where the hospital is for UCSF, you know what the waiting list is for employee parking? Hmm. Twenty five years. So there's two things that are funny about that. Uh, one thing that's funny about that is that it's a fucking twenty five year waiting list mm-hmm. to get a parking permit. Mm-hmm. But then what makes that extra funny? It's still, there's still people adding their name to that list. Mm-hmm. That's the market. There's the market for you. Mm-hmm. So good. <laughs> Is that sane? <laughs> it's so good. Well, and as, as I keep saying uh, up here, and it's true of San Francisco, right? From the, from the day that San Francisco was founded until uh, the last 10 years, you could be a working class person and live almost Somewhere. Any, yeah. anywhere. I mean, you know, there are a few neighborhoods you couldn't live in. But for the most part, you could live in downtown San Francisco as a working class person. And you could do that all the way through until just recently. And in Seattle, that's been true until just five, ten years ago. You could be a working class person and choose any neighborhood you wanted to live in and live there. Uh, And so in the 150 plus years that Seattle's been a city, for us to say, well – in the last five years, you can't be a working class person and live anywhere in the city. And that's the new normal. And that's just how it is. That's just how markets work. Sorry. It's a market, John. Sorry. Next. That's just how it is. I mean, what, what are you, some kind of communist? What are you? You want to <laughs> derp derp like the markets? And that's how it is. So figure I'm out. I'm John something. and I want to change natural law. Blah, yeah, exactly. blah, blah. Figure something else out because you can't do anything about that. And it's like one of those mentalities is crazy. You know, and I don't think it is that you should be able to live anywhere in Seattle still, uh, as we have always been able to do. Uh, I don't think that that is the crazy one. I think the crazy one is that if you're a working class person, you should have to, uh, you should have to drive for 45 minutes and pay $30 a day in parking because what we've decided now is that the market 
has just determined that uh, Seattle land is worth more than diamonds. <laughs> and the reason for that is that that's where people, you know, that's because people want to walk to, people who have uh, $250,000 a year jobs want to walk to work. It's like, that is good, but we didn't do very good planning. Right. And planning is the, is the key and, and a sense that, that none of these things are set in stone. Capitalism did not win any, any like epic battle of ideologies so that it is just unassailable from here on out. And it has its acolytes who are going to argue for it. And they will call you a communist if you try and talk about any kind of regulation. And there are people who believe that governments are the soul of evil. But the fact is, this is an ongoing process. We're still trying to navigate how to be human beings and govern ourselves. And it's ongoing and we're in an exciting moment. And, and the pressure that's being put on us by this by this insanity is the pressure that's going to develop new thinking and that should be always exciting to us you know yeah new thinking and the people in san francisco and new york city and and seattle who are realizing like you know my house was worth two hundred thousand dollars in 2002 then it was worth five hundred thousand dollars in 2007 that seems crazy yeah. Then it was worth $198,000 in 2007 and a half, which <laughs> seems crazy. And now it's worth $600,000 in 2015 and I'm starting to see a pattern, which is that that is crazy. Yep. And so what do you do? Lay down do you lay down in your bathtub and eat a meatball sandwich or do you run for fucking city council? Yeah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I try to explain this to my kid, like why, you know, it, it, you know, she has drills at school. Oh boy. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the 2010s. She um, has drills like, you mean earthquake drills? No, they literally give them drills. No, they have, yeah, they have, they have different kinds of drills. You get fire what? drills. You know what they have? They have lockdown drills. Can you believe that? For a gun. Yep. yep. In case there's like a school lockdown. But the point is, like, you know, you got to try to explain to a kid, like, I'm trying to explain. Look, I understand that you have made a great Chinese wall of stuffed animals across your room and that that's a thing that you don't want to disturb. But, like, it's important for you to leave a space in there. So, because if there's a fire, I don't want to scare you here, but if there's a fire, you're going to want to be able to get out of the house without tripping on a bear. <laughs> and it's very difficult to explain why we have to practice these things, like a fire drill um, or any of that stuff, why we have to practice them in moments of quiet and repose, <laughs> do it until it starts to feel like it's not going to be a panic. Because when the actual fire happens, you, do not, you don't have time to think. Mm -hmm. um, the poor analogy I'm trying to make here is that the problem is now we're in the middle of a blaze in our town. It sounds like to some extent in your town. It's coming. Well, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of too late to figure out what this fire strategy is because now we just need to focus on putting out the, the blazes. Yeah, right. I mean, in San Francisco, you can't even live in Oakland anymore, right? Nope, nope, nope. She's, uh, my wife was talking because it's something we sure thought about. Um, and uh, yeah, and she's like, oh, it's actually not too bad. You know, it's just only like a, it's like a two hour BART trip pretty much. And it's like, wow, talk about quality of life. Yeah. No, no, it's pretty bad. I'm anxious to see, I'm anxious to see how this continues to evolve. And it's going pretty fast. I just saw on your Twitter, 
We shouldn't talk about this, probably. <laughs> you uh, you raised good money, it looks like. Oh, uh, uh, in my campaign. Yeah, I'm, be, I'm now I'm, I'm failing at every on every count here. Your Roderick, uh, vote Roderick uh, Twitter account just retweeted something that says you uh, surpassed your competitor in fundraising. Oh no, not not uh, not my not the big guy. Oh, this is a little guy. Yeah, he uh, the big guy's got uh, got tons and tons of money because he's you know he's um, got tons of money, tons of money because <laughs> you know because his he has actually fewer contributors than we do. But his contributors all give seven hundred dollars, right, 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 which is the maximum. And our contributors, a lot of them, you know, give twenty five bucks, and that's what they can afford, and that is amazing. But it makes you know, it makes the it makes fundraising more of a challenge. And the thing is, like, I'm a huge supporter of campaign finance reform, and now I see uh, how much better it would be, even in something as small as a city council race, let alone. Imagining campaign finance reform on a national scale. Like a Senate race. What a difference that would make. You know, think about the million plus dollars you have to raise. And every dollar you take from somebody, they hand it to you and look you in the eye and go, you're not going to fuck me later when I need you to change the law for my bulldozer company, are you? (laughs) And, you know, you see it every day like, oh, Jesus, uh, no, sir. Thank you. know, you've got that. You've got half the check in your hand. And he's like, you know, one day I'm going to ask you for a favor. (laughs) It may not be on this day. <laughs> Make them uh, look what they did to my beautiful boy. Do you get a lot of? Do you, get, do you, do you seek a lot of help from morticians? Uh, you know, you, you probably like, grant a lot of favors to morticians. You know how this business works. You don't. You come to my daughter's wedding and you ask me for this. This <laughs> sounds, is that sounds like Marlon Brando. It sounds like your dad. <laughs> it's the only one I know. Uh, you know, my dad and Marlon Brando once had a confrontation. What? Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell it? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, they're both. You know, the statute of limitations is run out, right? It's true. It's true. Uh, like in person, in uh, an in person, um, an in person confrontation uh, over a um, over a lady. <laughs> <laughs> you are shitting me. I'm not. I'm not shitting you. What so, era? In the 1950s. Whoa! So my dad was an uh, was an an actor. Uh, well, that was one of his like. Uh, it, you know, my dad always wanted to be, you know, one of the Bohemians. Yeah, and was, but in the 50s when he was lawyering and drinking, he also was a member of a theater group in Seattle called the Cirque Theater that did productions in the round. And um, in the 50s, he was doing a play at the Cirque and a young actress by the name of Rita Moreno. What? uh, Was his co-star in a play. And my dad and Rita Moreno had a little, some sort of little, you know, time. Wow. And uh, one night, uh, my dad came out of the theater with Rita Moreno. And Marlon Brando was waiting in the shadows, waiting in the in the bushes, as my dad described it. 
Uh, and he and Rita Moreno were uh, already acquainted and were also having a um, affair de cour. Hmm. Uh, this is, you know, er- early 50s. And they had a uh, they had a little bit of a you know a confrontation in the bushes. Didn't you know? No, no, no one raised a fist. It was just like, hey, and my dad went, and you wow. know, Rena was like, uh, and then uh, you know, I think that she uh, saw that Marlon Brando was of, of the two of them, the one that was probably. Oh man, your dad had to live with that suaver. I mean, speaking as someone who has had similar sorts of uh, experiences. You've been in the bushes. <laughs> I've been in the bushes, uh, with, not with Marlon Brando, but with, you know, other younger Brandos. Uh, you know, you take, you, take, you, you take that away. You walk, you walk away with that. You realize, like, you know, we're all, we're all just, uh, just a couple of kisses away from Kevin Bacon. There's, you know, there's nothing that really special about other people. It's just that some of them are really more beautiful and talented, mm-hmm. and um, and you know what? It, how, what? How do you? I mean, basically, how you how you deal with that information, how you shoulder that burden, uh, determines your course in life. Mm. I mean, you could you could uh, my dad could have could have dived into those bushes. He could have grabbed Martin Bra- Marlon Brando around the Martin Brando. He could have grabbed uh, him. Martin Brando around the ankles and said, take me with you. <laughs> I'll, I'll be your Carl Malden. 